0: Today, we are actually going through the book of Acts. We have been uh, throughout the summer, although you probably wouldn't know it. Uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've had different special guests uh, speaking and bringing the message, which has been wonderful. Uh, so, it's, But it's been a, a few weeks since we last left off in Acts, but we are getting back to it today. And we're today in Acts chapter six. Uh, we started this chapter about three weeks ago uh, as we looked at one of the first major leadership challenges faced by the church. And if you were with us back then, uh, you'll remember that the church church was growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, and with that were the, the pressures and the demands on the apostles. Uh, and so to deal with this problem, uh, this problem that actually... Uh, made the the apostles face the prospect of of being distracted and and being derailed from preaching the gospel, which was like the the one most important thing they were called to do. They had to do something. And so they they called for a meeting of the entire church. And and through some God-given wisdom, they suggested that the church select seven men to become um, deacons is really the the, the Greek word that they use there. Uh, Men who would serve the church uh, in in an administrative type of a role that would free up the, the apostles to continue their work of preaching the gospel and spending time in prayer. Well, the the whole church agreed that this was a a great idea. And so they selected seven men who were uh, full of the Holy Spirit, well-respected, and full of wisdom. And they appointed these guys to serve the church. And one of these men was a man named Stephen. And it's around him that our story is going to revolve today. Although that's not entirely true, uh, even though Stephen is a main character in this story. As we pointed out all along, uh, every story in the book of Acts revolves around the person of Jesus. Even though the the book is called the Acts of the Apostles, it really is the Acts of Jesus and and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to see in this uh, passage today. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn with me to Acts chapter 6, or we'll have the the passage up there on the screen for you to read along. Uh, And we're going to start at verse 8. But before we do, let's just pause here and and pray and ask God to, to speak to us through his word this morning. Dear God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for each one that's come uh, into this building so that we can take a few moments out of our, our uh, full and busy week just to stop, uh, to spend some time acknowledging your goodness, to, to worship you, to bring our prayers and requests to you, and inviting you to speak to us. And we pray that you would do that now. As we open up your scriptures, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would would convict us of sin, uh, make those things obvious that we need to, to change in our lives to become more aligned with you and as we saw in the video, to to adjust our values to the values of the kingdom of God, that we can live for you. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8, begins like this. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Now, this is interesting, and I I pointed this out uh, in the the last message, uh, that although Stephen was appointed to serve kind of in an administrative role, uh, specifically to oversee the daily distribution of food to those in need, still here we see him doing some amazing miracles among the people and he was very actively engaged in sharing the gospel with non-believers you know and these are normally the things that we'd see you know the the apostles doing but yet here's stephen doing those same things and i think this is just another great reminder for us that everyone and anyone can be used by god in some incredible ways you know it doesn't matter what your official role or, or title is if you've surrendered your life to god God can do some amazing things through you. And in this case, Stephen was, was doing miracles and in, in sharing the gospel with his fellow Jews. Now, you'll remember from our last message that there were two groups of Jews living in Jerusalem at this time, right? There was the the Hebrew speaking Jews who were like the the native born, uh, born and raised within the borders of Israel kind of Jews. But then there was also the Greek speaking Jews. And these were Jews that had been born and raised in in other parts of the, the Roman empire, but had since returned and were now living in Jerusalem. Now, based on his Greek name, Stephen is very likely one of those Greek-speaking Jews who had come to, to live in Jerusalem, as were these other Jews that he was debating with. Uh, it's even possible that Stephen was a member of this the synagogue of the freed slaves, where he was debating with these guys. Uh, this synagogue would have been one of the synagogues that was started by these Greek-speaking uh, Jews who had at one time had been slaves somewhere in the Roman Empire, but had now come to, well, they had been freed and had come to Jerusalem, and they started the synagogue. synagogue. Now, we don't know for sure if if Stephen was part of that group or not, but uh, nonetheless, he was there debating with these guys. And what we do know is that like many of the Jews in Jerusalem at this time, these guys were not eager to embrace the the message of the gospel. They were resistant to it. And so as Stephen is trying to to share the good news about Jesus Christ, these men started to, to debate with him, trying to argue against his claim that Jesus Christ was the risen son of God. However, as we see in verse 10, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. And and I think that, too, is a great encouragement for us, a great reminder as we try to share the gospel with other people. You know, it's not our eloquent delivery or our clever speech that's going to convince people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. But rather, it's the wisdom of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to make the difference. Now, I know many Christians are, are kind of terrified at the thought of, of sharing the gospel with someone. You know, what if, what if we muddle our words or we say something wrong? Uh, what if they ask us questions that we can't answer? Or what if we end up just looking like a fool and, and we just confirm their beliefs that we're some religious nutjob? You know, if you can relate to that at all, you know, I think this passage should be a great encouragement to you. First of all, I'll remind you, it's not really our job to worry about the results of our witnessing. You know, that part's kind of up to God. He just calls us to be a faithful witness for him. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prepared and and do all that we can to give a a full and accurate account of the gospel. Uh, After all, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, You must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. You know, we do need to be prepared and be ready to, to tell people the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And of course, we need to do this with, with gentleness and respect, but we don't need to, to stress and worry about how that conversation is going to go or how that other person might respond. You know, we can leave that stuff up to God. Uh, Jesus once told his disciples back in, uh, in Mark thirteen nine. it says, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, you will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers, but this will be your opportunity to tell them about me for the good news must first be preached to uh, to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time, for it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't that an encouragement for us? right? One of the main reasons why the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within each one of us is to empower us to be his witnesses. We read about that in Acts 1.8. And that means that when you've surrendered your life to Christ and you've surrendered your conversations to Christ, that means that the Holy Spirit will do the speaking through you. He will give you just the right words at just the right time. And that's what will give your conversations impact and effect Right? Our job is simply just, just to enter into those conversations with people and trust that God will speak through us. And I think that's exactly what we see in Stephen here. You'll remember uh, from back in verse 5 when we're describing the, 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 these deacons, these men that they were choosing to, to serve in the church. Uh, Acts 6.5 says that Stephen was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was, he was full of it. And then in verse 8 he says uh, he's described as a man full of God's grace and power. Right? He had fully surrendered his life to the Holy Spirit. It was no longer Stephen who was living, but Christ living in him. And so, because Stephen had so yielded his life and, and his thoughts and his conversations and everything to the Holy Spirit, we see in verse 10 that none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. And so being unable to refute his bold claims that Jesus was the risen Messiah, and then also being unwilling to accept Christ as their own personal Lord and Savior, uh, the the Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen decided they had to do something different, right? They had to change the equation somehow. And, And so they hatched a plan. Verse 11 says, so they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Now this... It's an interesting verse, right? As Stephen is brought before the, the high council, facing some very serious charges, the very same charges that led Jesus to the cross just some time before. As Stephen faced those charges, verse 15 tells us that his face became as bright as an angel's. Now, we don't know if this is a, a literal brightness, uh, kind of like you know, when, when Moses saw God face-to-face and he had to veil his face because it was kind of radiating, or if this is a more figurative brightness, like we read about when uh, Jonathan tasted that honey when he was chasing the Philistines and it says that his eyes brightened, if it's that kind of brightness. Either way, everyone in that high council could obviously see that there was something going on with Stephen, something unusual. For a guy who's on trial for blasphemy, facing the very real possibility of death, you'd expect to see a face of, of fear, maybe, or, or anger, or at the very least, you know, stress or worry. But instead, Stephen's face was like that of an angel The face of someone who's just standing in the presence of God, someone who has a face full of joy and confidence, a face that showed nothing but perfect peace. No wonder everyone was staring at him. And it's at this point that Stephen's given a chance to respond to his accusers. Verse one of chapter seven now says, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And so Stephen's given an opportunity to to plead his case, and what follows is the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, basically, Stephen goes through the the entire history of Israel, um, using all the familiar Old Testament stories to make. I'd say three main points. Um, This morning, I'm not going to spend a great deal going through this sermon because it's quite a chunk. It's about 50 some verses, but I do want to read through it. Uh, But I want you to look for the three main points that Stephen's kind of bringing out in this. All right. Uh, So this is my my wording. He probably had different titles and thoughts in mind, but this is what I'm going to title them so you can look for these things as we read through. Number one, look for God's abundant grace for undeserving people. Uh, That comes up through the Bible a whole lot, but, but Stephen brings some of this up. God's abundant grace for undeserving people. Secondly, look for people's rebellious tendency to reject God's grace. And then thirdly, look for how people pursue religion, yet God pursues relationship. All right. So, and I know that's a lot of stuff to look through as we're reading through this rather large passage, but maybe even latch onto one of those things. Watch for that as we read through these. All right. So one more time, God's abundant grace for undeserving people, people's rebellious tendency to reject God's grace, and then people pursuing religion while God pursues relationship. All right. So verse two of chapter seven says, this was Stephen's reply. Brothers and sisters or brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here, not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said, and in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. And so when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him as governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt, 75 persons in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did his ancestors, or as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem and buried in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from Hamor's sons in Shechem. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt, who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. You tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? He asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard it, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. There his two sons were born. Forty years later, in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, "'I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.' Moses shook with terror and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, "'Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt.' So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there, Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol, shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing they had made. Then God turned them away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it is written, Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon." Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors into battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory. It stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the most high doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? And I'm just going to stop here before we read Stephen's final conclusion to all of this. But as we read, did you notice any of those three themes? Did, Did you notice God's abundant grace for undeserving people? Did you notice people's rebellious tendency to reject God's grace? And did you notice how people pursue religion, yet God pursues relationships? And and I wish we had more time this morning to to explore these different themes a little bit more, but perhaps that can be your, your homework assignment for this week. I'd encourage you to go home, read through that passage again, and look for those three themes, and then maybe use those three themes to examine your own life. You know, as you look at your own life, do you see God's abundant grace for undeserving people? Do you see your own rebellious tendency to reject God's grace? Do you see how you tend to pursue religious activities? And yet God continues to pursue you. Some good food for thought. Well, after this very uh, condensed history lesson, Stephen concludes his sermon with a a fiery accusation. Uh, He's supposed to be the one on trial, but yet it's his accusers that are pronounced guilty. Stephen says in verse uh, 51, You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's laws, even though you received it from the hands of angels. You know, and I should point out that this is now the third time that this high council has been confronted with their own guilt regarding their crucifixion of the Messiah. Uh, You'll recall how uh, Peter and John had first indicted them of this crime uh, after they had healed that lame man in the temple. They, they pointed that out to the, the high council. Peter again repeated this uh, after he was arrested and then freed by the angel and then arrested again. He, he brought the same thing up to them, uh, pointing out their, their guilt of murdering the Messiah. And now Stephen again points this out and he declares them guilty of murdering the Messiah. Three times they have been given the opportunity to repent of their sin. But three times they've hardened their hearts and they have refused to listen. In fact, at this point now, instead of repenting, they've actually chosen to add to their guilt. If you look at verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Joseph's accusation and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see that heaven's opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. The death of Stephen would mark a, a dramatic change in the life of the church. Uh, next chapter, as we continue on, we're going to read how this event began a great persecution of the church, which was spearheaded by a zealous Pharisee named Paul, well, Saul at this point. But we're going to get into that more in our next message. But for today, I just want to conclude with those same three themes that we saw in uh, Stephen's sermon as they now apply to this high council. As I mentioned, this was now the third opportunity that they had to repent of their sins and turn to God. You know, for those ones who had murdered the Son of God, God had given them abundant, abundant grace. But yet their rebellious hearts rejected that grace time and time again. This high council would much rather uh, fulfill all their religious requirements, you know, offering the the sacrifices at the temple and and observing their Sabbaths and and all their rituals and and holding tightly to the law of Moses rather than enter into a personal relationship with the God of heaven. Uh, I guess, you know, carrying out all those religious requirements was easier than actually surrendering their life to the Lord. And, And maybe, maybe that's the case for you. You know, have you chosen just to, you know, add a few religious activities to your life? rather than enter into a personal relationship with the God of heaven? Is it easier for you just to run through your checklist of good deeds than to truly surrender your life to him? You know, it may be easier, but it's completely ineffective. Uh, Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 64, 6, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. You know, no amount of, of good deeds or, or religious activity can make us right with God. Salvation is found only through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he did die on a cross for our sins so that we can have forgiveness in life and that he, that he has risen and he is alive today, standing, as, as Stephen noted, at the right hand, at the place of honor of God. You know, even though we are completely undeserving of this, God has offered all of us, every one of us, abundant, abundant grace. And the question is, will you accept His grace today?